Welcome back to the Dispatch Podcast. My name is Mary Trimble, and I'm a reporter for the Morning Dispatch. Saturday, February 24th, marked the two-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. I spoke to Mark Kansian, senior advisor to the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, think tank here in D.C., about U.S. support for Ukraine, what we mean when we talk about aid to Ukraine, and what the war has revealed about our own defense industrial base and readiness for future conflicts. If you enjoy our conversation, I'd encourage you to check out a live stream with reporters currently on the ground in Ukraine. You can listen to that discussion in the SCIF if you become a dispatch member. Thanks for listening. and welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. Thanks for having me on the show. So you and I have talked several times over the last year or so about the ongoing battle for aid to Ukraine uh, and the ways that that has, has played out uh, and the ways that it's intersected with the U.S.'s own um, defense capabilities and stockpiles. You are someone who who knows about what you speak because of your your background. Would you mind just briefly explaining to our listeners um, sort of where you come from on this issue. Sure. I have three elements in my professional background. I was in the Marine Corps for 37 years, uh, active in reserve, did four combat tours during that time. Uh, I was in the Pentagon as a senior civilian looking um, with a staff that overlooked uh, military forces and acquisition. And then for the last eight or so years I've been at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C., where I write about military operations, forces, and budgets. So obviously the the sort of preeminent issue over the last two years as we're approaching the two-year anniversary of the war with Ukraine has been how the U.S. will respond to Russia's invasion. How would you characterize both the quality and the quantity of the aid the U.S. has given to Ukraine since uh, Russia invaded two years ago Saturday? Well, the the quantity and quality have both been very great. Uh, starting with the quality, we have given the Ukrainians top-of-the-line equipment. That is the same equipment that we use to equip our own forces. We have not been giving them uh, obsolescent or hand-me-downs, which has been the case with some allies uh, over the years. And the quantity has been quite substantial. The total amount of aid, now that includes everything, has been $113 billion. Uh, the military part of that is about $50 billion. Now, some people criticize the amount for not being sufficient, and you can make the argument the ISA should have started more quickly. Uh, maybe some of the packages should have been larger. Uh, but the aid has been very substantial and has, along with what other allies and partners are provided, particularly in NATO and the EU, you know, given the Ukrainians a qualitative advantage and also allowed them to equip their vastly expanded military forces. If you could sort of indulge in a, a counterfactual, where do you think Ukraine would be without the aid that the U.S. has provided over the last two years? Well, if without the U.S. aid and the aid from uh, other countries, Russia would have been in Kiev and mid-March. The Ukrainians could not have held out without 
the enormous amounts of aid from the United States and other countries. For example, early on, the United States sent a lot of javelins. Those were instrumental in uh, stopping the uh, Russian advance towards Kiev. And javelins, I, I say, because there, there was a whole variety of anti-tank missiles that the United States and others provided. But the, that was key. Without those um, additional munitions, uh, the Ukrainians could not have held out, uh, regardless of you know, how determined they were. And you mentioned the, the defense of Kiev. The, the first year of the war seemed to be marked by these incredible Ukrainian uh, successes. The second year has, has been more defined by, it seems, this failed counteroffensive or, or um, at least not as successful as the Ukrainians uh, and their allies would have liked. What do the Ukrainians need now? It seems like the, as I said, victories have, have been fewer and further between for Ukrainians just this week. They, they pulled out of uh, the city of Avdivka that had resisted, you know, Russian occupation in one form or another for, for a decade. What do they need on the battlefield now? Well, first, I think your characterization of military operations is essentially correct. In the first year, you have a phase where the Ukrainians are on the defensive, fighting a desperate resistance, but very successful. And the Russians pull back from Kiev. They pull back from Kharkiv. You get front lines stabilized, essentially, where they are today. But the Ukrainians launched two counterattacks in the fall of uh, 2022. One captured a lot of territory east of Kharkiv, uh, and the other one pushed the Russians out of Kherson. Uh, there was a lot of hope last spring, a little over a year ago, going into a Ukrainian counteroffensive. The Ukrainians received a lot of training and equipment, but the results of that were disappointing. The Ukrainians were not able to get through the Russian defensive zone, which the Russians have been working on for uh, six months. So where are we and what do the Ukrainians need? Well, the first thing uh, to note is that there's no magic bullet. You know, there's no piece of equipment that we can give the Ukrainians that will uh, allow them to, to break through the Russian lines or uh, will be a shortcut to victory. Uh, over the course of the two years, we've seen successive uh, uh, weapons that were got a lot of attention and there was hope that you know this would be a game changer. We heard that many times. Javelin, HIMARS, uh, Patriot. Uh, and now we hear it about uh, F-16s. And while all of these are useful and add to the Ukrainian military capability, there's no such thing as a game-changing uh, piece of equipment. Ukrainian military capabilities are the sum total of all of the equipment they've received. So the, the first answer is the Ukrainians need to continue to uh, receive equipment at the level that they've been receiving it for the last two years. This needs to cover a wide spectrum of capabilities from the things that people think about, you know, like artillery shells and air defense missiles, you know, to the very boring stuff like engineer equipment, trucks, medical supplies, and, uh, you know, all of the um, uh, equipment that goes with a modern military. Because militaries in combat need a continuous flow of weapons, munitions, and supplies. They use up supplies, uh, they fire munitions, and equipment gets destroyed. And if that flow is interrupted, then military forces uh, will decline and collapse. So the key thing right now is to keep that flow going. Having said that, there are probably some things that 
deserve extra attention. Um, air defense missiles have been, have been running low, and um, you know, when aid is reestablished, I think those will be high on the list as well as uh, artillery, for example. A lot of focus on F-16s, and those are, are useful, but the numbers are going to be uh, very small. Yeah. Would you put into context for us, um, you mentioned artillery. It has often been said that this is a very artillery-heavy war. What are sort of the, the frontline conditions we're talking about that, that makes this an artillery-heavy war? And, and when we say artillery-heavy, how many you know rounds are we talking about? What are, if you have some numbers to sort of put around uh, these phrases that we throw around when we talk about this war? Uh, yes, it is an artillery-heavy war. And that, I think, surprised most observers. Uh, there was a lot of talk about you know, future ground combat being long-range precision strike, and those capabilities have been very important. But what we're seeing on the front line looks a lot like World War One. You've got trench lines and strong points and uh, the extensive use of unguided artillery projectiles. And to give you a sense about the numbers, the Ukrainians, uh, particularly at the the height of the counteroffensive, we're firing something like 200,000 uh, rounds per month. Uh, and to put that into perspective, before the war, uh, the U.S. was producing about 100,000 rounds per year. Uh, the United States has now bumped that up. We're probably at about 30,000 rounds per month, but nowhere near the expenditures that the uh, Ukrainians have uh, required. Uh, the United States has sent something like a million and a half rounds, and the Europeans have sent uh, many also. But you know, this is a, a race about whether U.S. Uh, U- Europeans can increase their production uh, in, in order to sustain uh, the Ukrainians. To look at the other side, the, the Russians, uh, the Russians and the Soviets before them never threw anything away. So, you know, they had mountains of artillery shells and old tanks uh, and old vehicles. We're seeing a lot of those on the battlefield. Uh, but they were firing something like a million uh, rounds per month. Uh, so uh, between the Ukrainians at maybe 200,000, the Russians at a million, that gives you a sense about just how much uh, artillery fire there was. Do you think that the Russians can sustain that uh, that high level of artillery fire? Uh, the short answer is no, not at that level of a million a month. Uh, even the Russian stocks get low. Now, they are getting uh, additional uh, artillery munitions from uh, the North Koreans, uh, and that has helped. Uh, they've increased their own uh, production. Uh, it's a little hard to say wh- where they'll end up at, but you know, maybe in the 300,000 to 500,000 per month, more than the Ukrainians, uh, but not you know, at the level that uh, they were firing at the first two years. And so we've sort of talked around it, but anyone listening this to this likely knows that uh, a supplemental aid package for Ukraine is uh, stalled in Congress. It passed uh, the Senate, but it's not clear uh, what its fate is in the House, whether it will be uh, taken up when they come back from from recess, which we're recording this on, on Tuesday morning. The House is currently in recess. Describe to me, obviously, that the fate of the bill is is uncertain, whether it survives sort of in its current form, also uncertain and, and down to some political machinations. But describe to me, if you will, what what has been proposed uh, in this roughly 60 billion 
dollar package of of aid to Ukraine. And and I'd love to circle back to that phrase as well. Yes. The aid to Ukraine is 60 plus billion because there's some funding proposed for humanitarian assistance, a large chunk of which might end up with uh, Ukraine. But it's important to note that the phrase aid to Ukraine is a misnomer because about 60% of all of the aid to Ukraine is spent in the United States and about 90% of the military aid is spent in the United States. Uh, One hears uh, criticisms that the United States is sending pallets of dollars uh, to the Ukrainian government. And of course, that's not at all true. on the military side, there are three elements uh, of aid. There is U.S. equipment that is sent to Ukraine. That's the drawdown of existing U.S. equipment. And then there's money to, to backfill that. But that's uh, equipment and munitions and supplies that can get there pretty quickly. Uh, then there's money for Ukraine to buy new equipment. That's really f- more for uh, rebuilding the Ukrainian military after the war. But this would be newly produced equipment, there's money for what are essentially services, you know, that is training and maintenance and intelligence support. Uh, and then finally, there's money for U.S. forces. U.S. has surged military forces to Eastern Europe. Uh, those are down to about 10,000, but they have continuing uh, costs there. So there's a chunk of money for uh, U.S. military forces. In addition, there are three other pieces. Uh, One piece is humanitarian assistance, and some of that is in Ukraine itself. Some of it is in Eastern Europe uh, and around the world uh, to mitigate the effects of the war in Ukraine. Uh, And then some chunk of it is spent in the United States for Ukrainian refugees. And then finally, there's a small chunk of money that goes to other U.S. uh, agencies, like Treasury gets some money to enforce sanctions, uh, oversight. Uh, groups get money, you know, to make sure that, uh, you know, the aid is spent appropriately. And so you mentioned as part of this package, the presidential drawdown authority. Could you describe a little bit, sort of a little bit more what that mechanism is? Uh, Yeah, start there and we'll talk about about that mechanism. The presidential drawdown authority is uh, often very confusing. It's a provision that's been around since the early 1960s, although it's been at a very low level, like $100 billion a year, mostly giving obsolescent equipment to uh, allies and partners. But for the war in Ukraine, that authority has been greatly increased. And in every aid package, there is a provision that says that the president is authorized to provide to Ukraine up to X billion dollars uh, worth of U.S. military equipment. Now, Congress also provides money to backfill. Now, there's no requirement in the statutory language to backfill equipment, but of course, the numbers here are so large that the uh, Pentagon needs that money. Uh, there's a little risk because of the gap between the time when you send some piece of equipment to Ukraine and when you get a, a replacement, but the Pentagon has made a judgment that is uh, that is acceptable. Uh, the great advantage of the drawdown authority is that equipment can get there very quickly. You don't have to wait for production coming out of a, a you know, defense industry, which takes years. Uh, you can take stocks immediately. It, some of it will arrive within a couple of weeks. You know, some of it may take several months, but it arrives pretty quickly. And that's uh, you know, uh, very important for the, for the Ukrainians. And when you see announcements, you know, the they're going to announce today that they are providing $250 million worth of aid uh, to Ukraine. It's that drawdown authority 
in addition to uh, commitments for new production. And I, if I'm remembering correctly, the last time we had one of those drawdowns was uh, December, late December of last year. Correct me if if I've missed this, but is that still money being used that was that was appropriated in September of of 22? Is that the last time we had a, a supplemental for Ukraine? Uh, the last announcement, I believe, was the middle of January, and DoD said that that was. Uh, the end of their uh, funding. Now, there is a little gap between the authority. The DOD has more authority, but they don't have any more funding, and they've been uh, reluctant to send more equipment for which they don't have money uh, to backfill. Uh, the funding uh, comes from the last supplemental, which was actually uh, a year ago. Uh, in I believe it passed in December as part of the omnibus. There hasn't been another supplemental since then. Since then, the administration proposed one in August. That sort of went nowhere. And then they proposed a large uh, supplemental of $106 billion covering Ukraine, Taiwan, Israel, and the border. And, and I believe that came out in October. And so you just mentioned the other two countries involved in, in the original supplemental request, uh, Taiwan and Israel, or the Indo-Pacific and Israel, if, if you prefer. It's clear that the U.S. is thinking about more than just Ukraine. It's thinking about the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas and Gaza, and also a a potential future war between the U.S. and China if China invades Taiwan. So you've you've laid out sort of what the Ukrainians are using, what they need, air defense, artillery. Are any of is in the Venn diagram of these three theaters? Are there anything? Are, are there any weapons or uh, munitions that are that are in the, the the overlap of that Venn diagram that both Israel and and Ukraine, or Israel and Taiwan, or uh, or Taiwan and Ukraine will will all need? Yeah, this is a question that has been asked frequently because it's concerns about whether the United States can support three allies at the same time. Uh, it's important first to step back and note that our aid packages for Ukraine are by far the largest, uh, looking back two years and looking ahead, because that's a much larger war. And of course, it pits two nation states against each other. Uh, the Israelis have uh, about $14 billion of aid in this proposed supplemental. Uh, most of that is for uh, the future that is rebuilding the Israeli military post-war and uh, developing certain kinds of weapons, particularly air, def air defense weapons, there's a little money uh, for uh, current operations. There's some overlap with Ukraine. Uh, uh, fortunately, not too much. There are uh, uh, precision air drop munitions, for example. Uh, the, the Israelis have needed a lot of those. Ukraine also has used some, but because their air force is quite small, and the United States inventory of these munitions uh, is quite large. That has not been uh, much of a constraint. They have asked for artillery ammunition. And of course, that is something that the uh, Ukrainians need. Uh, on the other hand, the Israelis have needed uh, Iron Dome, which is an air defense system that the uh, Ukrainians uh, don't use. So that has not been a, a problem. Looking at Taiwan, uh, there is, again, some overlap. Uh, but 
Fortunately, not too much, though. Any conflict in the Western Pacific would mostly be an air and naval conflict, whereas what we're seeing in Ukraine is mostly a ground conflict. Uh, so the uh, Taiwanese need you know, uh, air-delivered munitions, long-range precision anti-ship anti munitions, for example. Uh, and Ukraine really does not need those, or at least not in uh, very large quantities. Uh, there is some overlap because the Taiwanese are now focusing more on their ground forces, so they're asking for HIMARS, for example, and uh, rocket munitions, as well as things like Javelin. Uh, and there, there is some overlap, and the Taiwanese are probably going to have to wait since they are not currently uh, in military uh, operations. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child, and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms, and it turned into a passive-aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And and we've alluded to it several times, but you know we're talking about stockpiles and inventories that uh, the U.S. has that aren't static. I mean, they can obviously be de- be depleted, but they can also grow. How has has the defense industrial base, as we sort of as we refer to it, reacted to the sort of conflagration of armed conflict in in the last two years, and, and as well as the potential for for armed conflict in the future? Well, that's a, a key element because with time, all of these shortfalls can be made good. And we were talking a minute ago about this Venn diagram and what the Ukrainians need, what the Israelis need, and what the Taiwanese need. And with enough time, the defense industrial base can produce enough equipment for all of them. The problem is you have two wars that are ongoing. Taiwanese are very nervous. So what the United States has tried to do is to expand production in its defense industrial base. The problem there is that before this war, uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, the industrial base had been sized and designed to produce weapons and munitions efficiently at peacetime production rates. Uh, When the Cold War ended, there was something called the Final Supper, uh, where 
the Secretary of Defense got defense industry together and said, the budgets in the future are not going to support all of you. You need to consolidate and downsize for this post-Cold War environment. And they did that in a big way. Uh, And as a result, they squeezed out all of the uh, excess uh, capacity and focused on producing at peacetime production rates. Uh, And the reason they did that, of course, is for efficiency, but also, you know, many outside critics, when they see extra capacity, they say, you know, that's wasteful. You have a factory that can make 200 widgets uh, a year and you're only buying 100, that's waste. The problem is that that wasteful uh, excess is also very useful for surge capacity. So when we went into uh, the war in Ukraine and it became clear that we were going to have to surge production, there wasn't much there. I mean, there's some production capacity. So several things have happened. First, the uh, Department of Defense has asked for more money to put into the industrial base to expand uh, production. They've also asked for and received from Congress permission to uh, do what are called multi-year contracts so that defense industry has a commitment for uh, future production and therefore is willing uh, to to make investments uh, in their facilities. One of the concerns that industry had articulated was essentially, show me the money. In other words, DOD, you tell me that you want more production, uh, but uh, we are unwilling to expand our facilities without being confident that the orders will be there in the future. Otherwise, you know, in a year, this war may end. And, you know, we have these expanded facilities, which are now considered wasteful uh, by many. So they wanted that commitment. The multi-year procurement uh, does, does that. And then DOD has been putting money into its budget plans. Uh, they did that for FY24, which came out a year ago. And then when FY25 comes out next month, I expect to see uh, more of that. The problem here is time. We have been able to increase production of some items. I, we're talking about artillery. Um, previously, before the war, it was down to about 8,000 uh, rounds per month. Now it's up to about 30,000 uh, rounds per month, and this is 155 millimeter. Um, the United States wants to get up to 90,000, but that's going to take another uh, year or two. So when we talk about sort of individual weapons, it seems to me that there are, there's probably a line somewhere where someone at the Pentagon says, we would prefer if the number of 155 millimeter artillery in our stockpiles didn't dip below this level. On how many things or, or how many pieces of material might you say we're getting close to, to those levels? And is there any sort of give and take on on the the amount of risk that the Pentagon is willing to uh, to take on as we wait, as you say, for these these shortfalls to be made good. Well, this is a very sensitive question. You've put your finger on uh, the numbers are classified, but we can infer some sense about where those lines are. And to take one example, javelin, which we gave uh, a lot of to Ukraine early on in the conflict. We probably gave them about 40% of our stockpile. And it seems that the Pentagon at that point said, no, that's as far as we are comfortable going. So since then, we've sent whatever our new production is, but not uh, uh, dipping further into our stockpile. And the reason the Pentagon says we're not comfortable is that there are other 
potential conflicts for which the Pentagon has to be prepared. For example, we could have a com- conflict on the Korean Peninsula. The North Koreans uh, could end up in a war with the South. The North Koreans, of course, are being very belligerent. Um, there could be conflicts with Iran. There could be uh, a conflict in a couple of years uh, around the Baltic states with you know, Russian aggression there. So to, to be prepared for these other possible conflicts, there's a level that the Pentagon doesn't want to go below. Now, the president could direct that the Pentagon uh, could direct the Pentagon to accept that risk, to ad- accept additional risk, but of course, then uh, you know that gets uh, very sensitive. And uh, we've seen that limit hit on a couple of other uh, items. Uh, for example, uh, stingers, which are air defense missiles. We've seen it on things like artillery and uh, HIMARS, you know, the, the rocket launchers. And there, what the Pentagon has done basically is every spare. Uh, system that it has, it has sent to Ukraine. Every training pool, every maintenance pool, uh, it has sent to Ukraine. But it has not been willing to take equipment out of existing units and send that to uh, Ukraine. Now, the United the United States could do that. You know, we could say late deploying reserve units will only have half of their equipment allowance, and we're going to send the other half to Ukraine. But you know, again, that that increases risk and then, you know, also get into some sort of institutional uh, politics. So uh, Pentagon has been unwilling to go beyond uh, what it has done so far. To your mind, has the war in Ukraine and, and the U.S.'s reaction revealed anything about the preparedness of the defense industrial base, put us in a, a better or, or more agile position for for future conflicts? I mean, if we zoom out to 10,000 feet, where is the U.S. defense industrial base um, in its in its preparedness two years after the war in Ukraine began? Well, there's no question that the war in Ukraine and tensions over Taiwan have greatly increased the appreciation for uh, uh, the need for uh, stockpiles and larger stockpiles and surge capability. Uh, Before uh, the war in Ukraine, the United States, ever since the end of the Cold War, had really been prepared for regional conflicts against opponents like Iraq uh, and counterinsurgency and had sized uh, its inventories based on those much lower requirements. Many analysts in the services had recognized that great power conflicts would put much greater demands on um, inventories. But in peacetime, uh, it's very difficult to put money against those kinds of requirements. You know, the problem with like a stockpile of artillery shells, for example, is they just sit there. You know, if you go out and buy a ship or an airplane, it you know, it's out there every day and people can see it and it's part of the active force. If you buy a lot of artillery shells or a lot of missiles, they're sitting in, you know, a bunker someplace and, you know, 20 years from now, then you demilitarize it if you don't use it. Uh, so they always had a hard time competing, even though everyone recognized that a great power of conflict would probably require more. Now we've made that transition between what we see in Ukraine and analyses about what a war with China over Taiwan would require. We're building up that uh, industrial base. The caution is that when the war in Ukraine ends, uh, as it will someday, the United States is 
will have to continue those investments and not turn around and say, well, that's all that surge capacity is wasteful. Let's get rid of it. Let's, let's get efficient uh, in our um, defense industry. And then we'll be back to where we were before. Well, Mark, those were uh, my big questions for you. But my last sort of gimme question is, is there anything that we are missing in this conversation? Anything that we haven't talked about? Anything that I should have asked you and didn't? Uh, you know, something we're, we're getting wrong when we're looking at this, at this big picture? I think there are two things we have to keep in mind on the big picture. The first is that most of this money is spent in the United States. Uh, this is not sent to foreign countries. And uh, as a result, it benefits many communities as well as the national security of the United States. The other big thing is that we are equipping allies and partners. You know, there are no U.S. forces involved in any of these conflicts. There are no U.S. forces in Ukraine, none in Israel none in Taiwan. We have allies who want to defend themselves, but they need equipment to do that. This is very different from the situation we faced in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's also much cheaper. Uh, those wars were extremely expensive because we had U.S. forces involved. Here we, we don't. We just have to equip our allies and partners. That's a very cheap way uh, to maintain national security. Well, we will leave it there. Mark Kansian, thanks so much for uh, joining us on the Dispatch Podcast. Thanks for having me on the show. 